This is the Tactical Leader Podcast, where we're on a journey of self-mastery and true leadership. I believe that in order to lead others, you must first be able to lead yourself. And in order to lead yourself, you have to first know yourself. If you want to learn the tactics to get to know yourself, to lead yourself, and to lead others, stay tuned to hear from industry experts as I unpack the tactics that they've used to build their business, build culture, and lead others. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Tactical Leader. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with John Becker. We're going to talk a little bit about how he helps people with the debrief with John Becker, as well as Aardvark, which is his organization. Before we begin, I'll remind you this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you're a podcaster, a YouTuber, or a content creator that wants to create tactical content that delivers, head over to nightly.productions to find out how we can help you discover, embrace, and share your voice in that tactical way. Again, that's nightly.productions. John, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much, Zach. Appreciate you having me on. Man, I'm super excited about this because you have a, an interesting organization that obviously uh, ties in with Aardvark. It ties into law enforcement, military, my background directly, uh, different pieces there. Um, and before we dive into too much about that, I want to give the audience just a little bit more of an intro um, to you where overall you've spent four decades dedicating yourself to protecting tactical operators. You're the founder and CEO of Aardvark Tactical, a leading provider of tactical equipment and custom solutions, and the founder of the Armor Manufacturer Project 7, which is a purpose-built, scalable, and integrated tactical armor built to suit operators' unique mission needs. Um, you founded Aardvark at like just 17. So you're a young guy that really focused on different things where um, you really want to focus on that tactical gear as well as uh, climbing gear that Aardvark originally specialized in. Um, beyond that, you have spent time at Loyola Law School um, when you became an attorney, which we'll uh, probably poke a little bit of fun about because uh, maybe we'll argue about that one, you know, but because you uh, should. You know, you know, um, your your interest was in civil rights, police litigation merged and developed into um, you really writing for a lot of the top tactical publications and a variety of different topics. Um, you also you reside over in L.A. Um, with your children and wife of 32 years, which is really impressive. I'm sure we'll touch on that a little bit. Um, and overall, when you aren't running the show at Aardvark or the debrief with John Becker, um, you're also running Ironman triathlons, racing sports cars, speaking for organizations across the country, and honestly, just sounding like being a crazy person because I could have stopped at Ironman triathlons and that would have been too much as it is. Um, before we unpack that a little bit more, John, what's a fun fact that we might not know from that introduction? I think probably one thing that's kind of weird about my personality is I seek discomfort. Uh, it is it is kind of a hobby of mine to go out and look for things that I'm either not good at or that scare me and then make them my habits. So that's what led to Ironman. That's what led to racing cars. Uh, I, I, I make a habit out of seeking discomfort because I find that by pushing the edges of my personality, by pushing the edges of my skill set, um, you know, you not only find out how, like Ironman taught me how deep the well is. And the only way you know how deep the well is, is by going to the bottom of the well. So I try in every aspect of my life to constantly challenge myself with stuff that scares me. And I've got to ask, I assume you've done the Ironman triathlons and actually completed them, not just like showed yes. up to them and waved. How long, how long does it actually take for you to get one of those knocked out? So I'm about a 13 hour Ironman, 13, 13, 30. Is that good? Uh, is that bad? I don't know. Like the, what's the scale on that? Cause it, you completed I, it. So you're already winning. I mean, I am six two, 260 pounds. So, you know, it, it's, I'm never going to be fast. 
Um, <laughs> you know, as, as you know from from your time in military service, like you you can on a long run, you can line the people up based on size. Oh, yeah. And uh, and you know, I'm I'm definitely not built for endurance athletics, uh, which I guess is part of what makes it so interesting to me. Yeah. Is I'm not built for it, so like, let's go do it. But you know, over the years, I've managed to take several hours off of my time from the first one that I did to, nice. the, to the last one. And uh, interestingly, last year at 54, set the fastest mile, 5K, 10K, half marathon, and half Ironman of my life. Wow! Which just goes to show you, continually challenging yourself and pushing yourself. Um, you know, I'm convinced age is really just a number. And a lot of it is how hard you drive yourself, uh, kind of gives you, you know, gives you the results that you're looking for. Yeah. I love that. I'll disagree. Cause at 34, when I wake up and my back hurts, like, I'm, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but no, I, I'm teasing, <laughs> man. Is, you know, and we, we have an interesting kind of a tie in cause 15 years of government, um, where I worked for the government, right? I was a SWAT operator here in Atlanta, used tactical equipment. I deployed with the army, went over there with the Green Berets, used some really cool tactical equipment. But what I recognize is a lot of it beat up my body. And a lot of it, you know, I have oh, yeah. small injuries here and there, you know, the, the knees hurt, the ankles hurt, the calves hurt, everything hurts sometimes. But I, I like that you say, you know, you continue that, uh, that continual improvement and continually push because every morning I'm still up in the, and getting after getting in the gym, maybe not as hard as some days, but I'm still working out every single day. Is that a big piece for you to like set your day with intentionality, actually get up, get moving and, and get that mindset right for the day? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have learned, uh, you know, a, a couple of things that the difference between John at 54 and John at 34 was I am much more intentional about the things that I do now. So it's, you know, the night before it's get ready for the next day. It's, it's put out your workout clothes, take away your excuses, figure out what your workout is for the next day. And first thing in the morning, get up, take out the dogs and work out and, and do that before checking email, before looking at text messages, you know, anything in my world that could absolutely be on fire. Somebody has my home number. Other than that, it's not that big a fire. And so, you know, I learned a long time ago that if you get up and check your email, your day's off to the bad start. So it's, it's like get up, work out. Then, then, you know, while I'm eating, I will, I'll check my email and, and start my day. Um, so yeah, that, that is absolutely how I start my, my day every day. And I find that, you know, a hard workout first thing in the morning kind of sets you up hormonally and, and kind of cognitively for the day. You, you think more clearly, you're just in a better place emotionally. And, um, and when I don't do that, I feel it. Yeah, I definitely learned that uh, definitely on the SWAT team, but more, even more in the military, right? Like if you're getting up and you're training every day, it really does um, kind of set your your mindset with that intentionality for the day. And uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to probe a little bit into that personal life because in that world, um, and you went through law school, so that was time intensive. Everything you do as a business owner is time intensive. But in the world of law enforcement and military, uh, being married 32 years is not normally a thing. I'm divorced myself. It's kind of like a, a piece where we get so focused on what we're trying to accomplish, the personal life falls to the wayside. So congrats on the 32 years, but what would you give some insights and some tips to those of us that are wanting to make the personal life as successful as the professional life? I think the personal life has to be the most important thing. You know, nobody, nobody ever lies on their deathbed and thinks, I wish I made more money. I wish I had worked more. Um, in the end, kind of, I've come to the conclusion that the only thing that really matters is our interaction with other people. And the only thing that's really fulfilling, you know, and I've been on both sides of the financial spectrum, right? I mean, I came out of law school and my wife and I were digging through the couch looking for change to go buy Taco Lita, right? Like we were in hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and thought we'd never get out of it. And, and fortunately, you know, over the, over the last 35 years, we've been successful and, and are now on the opposite side of that. 
But I think I think that you have to have at your core an anchoring principle, right? You have to have a core set of beliefs and a core set of priorities that drive your day and drive your life. And for me, having grown up in kind of a challenging family environment, that is my family, that is my wife, and it is my kids. And, you know, it's, you know, you think about like in your SWAT days, right? Priority of life, right? A hostage is always worth more than a suspect, right? And and so if, if you think of it in terms of priority of life, if the most important thing in your life is your family, everything else can fall out from there, but that is what drives you. So when, you know, when my kids have something at school, I'm there. And if that means, you know, that I'm canceling meetings, then I'm canceling meetings. But it is, it is absolutely critical that we are driven by an internal goal and an internal set of beliefs and core to those beliefs for me is family. Yeah. I, I love that piece of it. And I love touching on that. Thank you for sharing a lot of that because I think those value systems in the military and um, police world and business, we apply that to that world, right? But then we kind of forget that intentionality at home. We forget to bring those same core values at home, or maybe they fall by the wayside at times. So I appreciate you sharing that piece of it. Cause I think that, that is a really important part because if you're not happy at home, it feeds into the business. I'm sure you've seen that over the years, especially the industries you're helping support. No, hundred percent. And and the thing is like, even, even at work, you know, one of the things that I tell new employees is that what I care about is protecting tactical operators. That is your job is to protect tactical operators. The business, you know, matters, but you, you are not going to be driven by, by trying to make money. You're not going to be driven by trying to, you know, build an empire. Really, in the end, the only thing that truly motivates us and that we really care about is people. So in my case, it's very easy, right? My job is to protect people like you who are willing to place themselves in harm's way for someone they don't even know, right? When you you were in your previous incarnation, you were going into dangerous situations to protect people you probably would never meet. And so it's very easy for me to get up in the morning and say, that's the guy I work for. Right. So, so it's, it's when you start at Aardvark, the first thing you're told is care about the end user. If you do the right thing, care about the end user, tell the truth, the rest of it will take care of itself. And, and I really do think it's that simple. I, I think that if you, where we get in trouble is when we have conflicting interests, right? When we're like, oh, you know, I really want to get rich, but I kind of care about this. You know, you're setting yourself up. Uh, in the end, if you pre make your decisions about what's important to you, you can't become emotionally compromised. I, I, I really appreciate that piece of it because it, it's it's one of those where I, I would imagine you've learned this over the years, right? You're an attorney by trade, so it's a lot of education, a lot of studying. Um, but as you've gone out over the last, year, what, 30, 40 years, you can only imagine how much this world has changed in law enforcement, right? I started in 09. Um, that, that era for the last 15 years, law enforcement, military has changed completely, even since the 90s to the early 2000s to now when I deployed in 2019. I imagine you've studied this. You're obviously very heavy into the leadership world. Um, I, I saw, I pulled up a couple of books on your uh, website where you have a uh, reading list. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, he's been a guest on the show before. I read his books years ago on the SWAT team, saw him speak. And you have an amazing amount of resources there. As you've sought knowledge and tried to read more and invest more, is there anything, any resource like that you'd recommend to the audience for um, this mindset that you have now, maybe the collaborative piece of how you integrate life with work? So it's interesting because I had mentors early on in my career who I was very fortunate were very balanced people. One of the, the literally the first guy that I interviewed for the podcast was a guy named Sid Hale. 
Um, Sid retired CWO5 in the Marine Corps, commander in the LA County Sheriff's Department. Um, Sid was a guy who had kids, wife, you know, 50-year wife, kids that loved him, great career. And I, there were several people like that that I looked at early on and thought, that's what it's supposed to look like, right? Because that was not what I grew up in. What I grew up in was instability. So seeing people who had that and, and were able to find that balance I think gave me kind of a, a, an internal compass initially. I did spend a lot of time researching leadership. And I, I do think, I think your best kind of, you know, overall learn how to be a leader book is probably Jocko Willink's book, Extreme Ownership. Because not only, I mean, it's interesting, it's an entertaining read, but, um, you know, Jocko talks about a lot of stuff that people don't think about managing up in an organization, yes. you know, it, the gu- guiding principles, those kinds of things. Um, but one of the things that we started to do is every guest that we have on the podcast, I ask them to recommend a book or a couple of books that they think matter. And so we've taken that and built into the website, what we call the list. And we're actually about to turn the list into a relational database to let you search topics. But, um, the list is kind of the accumulation of all of the good leaders that I know and and have spent time with. And there certainly is overlap. You know, Culture Code is 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 a, a constant recurring book. Jocko's book is a constant recurring yep. book. Um, you know, I think Crit is is a really interesting book. Duckworth. Um, you know, I, I think that there's there's quite a few. But the, the main thing is, I think you have to be driven by a goal of improving yourself every time you get out of bed. And that might mean, you know, every year I pick up something I don't know how to do: playing piano, uh, you know, writing poetry, whatever. Like, okay, I suck at this. I'm going to figure this out because I feel like every day at work and at home, I need to be a little bit better than I was yesterday. And you don't always win that fight, but you engage it every morning. And, you know, after 20, 30 years, you start to look back and go, oh my God, I'm a completely different person than I was. Um, so yeah, I think I think probably just initial gut overview, probably Jocko's book would be the first thing to, to go read. Yeah, I talk about Jocko's a lot. And even his uh, follow-up to that, The Dichotomy of Leadership, is another phenomenal one that kind of explains his his theory of leadership even more. And you, you mentioned a couple of things that I, you understand in this world. Um, I think a lot of civilians might not understand certain pieces of the mindset piece, right? What Jocko talks about, the the um, Goggins, you know, his can't hurt me book and, and the way his mindset is where it's kind of just like suck it up buttercup, right? And yeah. as men, you know, as men, that's good and bad. But it's very um, conceptual attached to certain moments, right? In SWAT, when you're going in and you're doing hostage rescue, you have to like suck it up, buttercup, no matter what, you're just moving forward, right? When it comes to a lot of what Jocko talked about, same thing. But I feel like there's a lot of context missing attached to the checking out process, right? How do you go from being the operator to being the husband. And that's why I, yeah. I like talking about the piece you were mentioning. And when you read these books, there's sometimes missing that that context of like, hey, this is this is the time when you need to wake up and you need to go hard. These are the times where, hey, you need to pull back a little bit and be that spouse for your significant other. And I feel like that's kind of missed a little bit of it. It seems like in your studies, you've kind of seen the broad spectrum because I even saw you have meditations on the book list and um, different pieces there where it's more of the philosophical leader aspect of things. Have you seen that broad spectrum in all your conversations with folks? No, it's interesting. I've known very few people in my industry that I think are very well-balanced. And, and what I've noticed patterns and the guys I've interviewed and the guys that I've known over the last 35 years, the ones that retire well are the ones that are balanced. The ones that can leave the job and walk away 
are the guys who have great relationship with their kids and hobbies and a good wife and, you know, all of those things. The guys that struggle are the guys that are single dimensional and single dimensional anyways. I mean, it's not just in the tactical community, right? I know business guys that have sacrificed two and three marriages and relationships with all of their kids to make money. They're rich, but they're lonely and they're miserable. And uh, I, had, I had a guy, Jonathan Spiller, who was the guy that originally ran Armor Holdings. Um, he was originally an accountant at Deloitte and Touche. And when when the business started to really make like legitimate money, where I'm like, okay, this is this could be a living for me. I sat down with him and I said, hey, you know, I'm starting to re- make real money. Like, talk to me about money and how you invest money and how you store money. And he gave me the most valuable piece of advice that I've probably ever received, which was, he said, John, money is a magnifying glass. If you're happy, it will make you happier. If you're unhappy, it will make you miserable. Make sure that you're happy before you're rich. And and it's interesting because when I look at the people that I know, uh, I know a lot of happy poor people and I know a lot of miserable rich people. And I think at its core, like we've got one shot at this. And if if your entire life is focused on making money or, or succeeding in your career or or screwing over other people or any of those things, you literally are wasting the time you have, right? We work because we need to work. We work because we're passionate about what we work. And and I tell people like, you know, you spend the majority of your adult life working. So if work sucks, you better have a hell of a social life and nobody does. So work's got to be good and you've got to enjoy it and you got to love it and you got to be passionate about it. Um, But you've also got to constantly be striving for balance between your ambition and your morality, between your goals and, and your relationships and, and try to make choices consciously. If you're trading something, make it a conscious choice. I have a lot of friends that have traded their marriages for money hmm. and they always have the same reaction. I don't know what happened. No, you know exactly what happened. Yeah. You traded your marriage for money. Um, I think it's, I think it's important that we are intentional, everything that we do and, and really recognize at any point you're making trades. And it's really interesting when you apply that to the way you run Aardvark. You mentioned passion. I know you talk about having a higher purpose in organizations. Um, and I imagine with the longevity of the organization, you have passion for what you're doing. You have this higher purpose for uh, service for certain folks. And obviously in that service industry, you're serving those folks and keeping them safe. Can you talk to us a little bit about that uh, overall, that culture-centric leadership style that you talk about and why having that higher purpose as you take um, the the work-life uh, balance and integration, why does that higher purpose mean something to the individual and the organization? So I think, you know, like I said, in the end, people are really only made happy through their relationships with other people. And I think that if your goal is to make money, you can do that for a while, but you won't end up happy. And the majority of people that seek money won't find it. If you seek purpose, whatever that purpose is, right? My purpose is protecting tactical operators. And that's, that's I think, a very noble purpose. Um, but if you, if you seek purpose, it's much easier to find it because you can be poor and be really happy doing something you really care about. As an organization, if my goal is, hey, go make money, go make money is not a morality. It's not a, it's not a, a guiding light that, that the entire organization can focus on. I think you know when I teach culture-centric leadership, what I talk about is building a culture around a common purpose. And that common purpose has to emotionally resonate, and it has to be something that people can understand immediately. It can't be, you know, oh, we're going to hit these seven metrics. That's that's not it, 
right? Your purpose might be to build the best house you can possibly build. It might be to make the best cake you can make. In my case, it's it's keep you know you and your prior life safe. But as a leader, that is what you are passing down to your organization, and your organization is watching your behavior. You know, you can you can write all the mission statements you want. You can have all the rules you want. It's kind of like your kids, right? You can tell your kids, don't lie. But when your kids watch you lie, you teach them to lie. In an organization where you're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we care. And we see this all the time in our industry. Oh, we care about law enforcement. And then they're selling products that aren't safe. No, you don't care about law enforcement, right? Like in the end, you, you know, I always say like the thing with culture is culture is what drives our behavior. And every organization has a culture, right? Every group has a culture. You, you and your buddies have a culture. Your church group has a culture. Your family with your parents and grandparents has a culture. Those three cultures probably don't interact real well together. You wouldn't want to take your buddies to church with you, or you wouldn't want to take your church group home with your family necessarily, right? There, there's implicit in a culture, a, a sense of morality and a sense of rules and a sense of boundaries. As a leader, you're making that whether you want to or not. So if you're not intentionally focused on creating the right culture and, and creating your organization's focus on its purpose, that's going to happen accidentally. And generally speaking, when it happens accidentally, it's not a good thing. And, and you kind of touched on it, but I'd like, if you don't mind, expand a little bit, because you talked about, um, and, and you're really talking about that leadership by example, right? You have to be the example for that culture. Um, and, and you touched on it a little bit, but I was writing down, you know, how do you transfer and communicate these values down because that could be so important for retention, employee experience, customer experience, all these different things. If you're leading that example, but how are you also communicating it? Is it really just like showing um, in a large organization as a CEO, as a leader, this is what I'm going to do? Or how do you reinforce that all the way throughout the ranks, whether that's the military ranks, the police ranks, or uh, business ranks? I think that, yes, every action you take as a leader has an asymmetric relationship with the people who work for you, right? So the chief of police can tell you to be on time. If he shows up late for every meeting, it really doesn't matter what he says, right? As a parent, Which happens you can so many you, times. Those yeah, leaders 100%. in the military too, it happens all the time. Just like, you, why do you want us to respect your time if you're not going to respect our time? And should that be mutual correct. respect. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, like when you have kids, you, you learn some of these lessons implicitly and hopefully you learn them before you screw up your kids, but your kids, especially when they're young, watch everything you do, you are their TV. And so they see the way you treat people. They see the way you, you know, they see when you tell the truth, they see when you don't tell the truth. Um, they see what you care about. They see what you value. The same is true in your organization. Every interaction you have with, with someone who works under your command, whether it's a direct report or three steps down the chain, you are delivering to them maybe the only message they have about the soul of the business, right? If I'm walking through the warehouse and somebody who's three steps below me in an org chart, you know, says something to me, that might be the only person, the only time I interact with that person in a month or in three weeks or in a week. So it carries a much bigger importance to them than it does to me. But you have to constantly recognize the importance that it's carrying with them. And so your actions need to be conspicuously honorable, right? You have to, you know, it's very easy to, to tell the truth when it's in your favor. It's much more challenging to tell the truth when it hurts you. But telling the truth when it hurts you is when your kids learn that you tell the truth no matter what. It's when your employees learn you tell the truth no matter what, which means when we screw something up, I own it conspicuously. And I make a policy of socializing wins and personalizing losses. So, hey, Zach, we did a great job. 
Congratulations. This was a great deal. I appreciate everything you did. Hey, Zach, this really didn't go well. I take full responsibility for it. And, and unfortunately, right now, we've, we are living in a time when the exact opposite is true, right? You look at our political leaders, you look at our business leaders, and it's, look how great I am. Look at all these things I did. Oh, yeah, that went bad. That's somebody else's fault. And, and that just that can't be you. Like, if you want to have a successful organization and you want your people to act with, with dignity and with honor and with integrity, you have to lead that example. There is no other way. And a lot of that, what you're talking about, comes from that extreme ownership lesson that Jocko talks about, right? You take you take accountability, you take ownership down. Um, the dichotomy really talks about, uh, I'm sorry, you take that accountability up and down, right? Where you take the ownership of the different things. And the dichotomy of leadership talks about how you still maintain accountability throughout, right? Yes. If somebody screws something up, you still keep them accountable for it. But yep. at the end of the day, you own, hey, I didn't provide you with the proper resources attached to it. And you do a retrain or you do something else to make sure there's corrections that are happening. So you're actually serving that employee or that team member. So everybody starts succeeding on a higher level. And I, I love that you're referencing that piece of it because you're absolutely right. It doesn't happen very often. And I think the younger generations, I'm a millennial, the Gen Z generation, you know, they're that mid twenties, they're starting to come into the workforce. They're not really seeing great representation of leadership these days. And is there something that you'd recommend for that young adult that is entering the workforce? What would you tell them to, to do to craft these leadership styles that you're talking about? So I teach a block for a bunch of tactical organizations on culture-centric leadership. And, and we, you know, we talk about a variety of different things, but one of the things that I talk about is candor and communication. Like you have got to be open to criticism of your own actions. And in the process, you open conversations about other people's actions. And, you know, it's, I think one of the things that we've lost in organizations is candid conversation. And I think that we've lost that through, you know, self-centered leaders that are just trying to exploit the people that work for them. I think we've lost it through this kind of modern attack on truth where, you know, we, we constantly see people publicly lying and not, not suffering the consequences for it, right? Just outright lying. And it's like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I know it's a bad thing. You, know, you look at the, the meltdown in 08 and like the entire housing market melted down. Many of the largest financial firms went bankrupt. People lost their fortunes and nobody went to jail. And there's a finger pointing everywhere. Oh, it was and this, finger and pointing this everywhere, and this and, and this. Oh, yeah. So, so you know, organizations are people hmm. in that they get to donate money places and hmm. they get to influence politics, but they're not people in that we can't put them in jail. And so what, what we're doing is we're creating a culture of, of not taking responsibility for your actions. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I try to teach new employees and try, try to work with my organization to do is make sure that when we screw something up, we own it. And it's not about blaming people. One, one of the things that I think young leaders especially mistake is they, they believe that when something goes wrong, I need to figure out whose fault it is. And I have an exact opposite view of that. If, if, if Zach, you know, runs the warehouse and Zach makes a mistake, one of two things is going on. Zach's a bad actor or the system is set up in a way that Zach's not producing the right result. If I treat it always as Zach is a bad actor, I never fix the system. If I treat it as the system is flawed and collectively we address the problem, right? It's like, Hey, we made a mistake on this order. Let's figure out why this happened. What could we have done to prevent it? In the process, we may discover, oh, Zach needs more training. We may discover, hey, Zach's a horrible human being and doesn't care, in which case we need to deal with that. But if you approach it from a systemic, all of us versus the problem approach, 
one, people are not defensive. Two, they work collectively. And three, you're going to get to the essence of the problem much faster, right? It's, it's, I would say, don't fix blame, fix problems. And then there's a much higher level of buy-in at the end of it as well from the team. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because the thing is, if you know that I'm on a witch hunt, hmm. then you're going to hide your pointy hat first thing, first chance you get. Absolutely. Right? Even if you're trenches, not a witch, get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Even if you're not a witch, you're hiding your broom and you're hiding your pointy hat, just in case I think you're a witch. If I say, hey, look, we got a problem. Let's work together. It's, it's just, I mean, it's basic communication, right? If, if you know, you think about the way that, that you interact with your spouse, um, you know, if, if, if she comes to you and goes, I'm tired of the way you do this, you are instantly defensive. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in, in interpersonal communications, we've always got to be focused on the way our message is received. And, and no place is that more true than in an organization that you lead because you have such an asymmetric effect on the people that work for you. You can, you can make them feel really good about themselves. You can make them feel terrible about themselves. And so my view of it is, is if we're all working together collectively, we're going to get the right answer. My, my view of leadership is as a leader, my job is to get 100% of the brain power that is available to me in the organization, right? I want 100% of what Zach has in his head. And that only happens when Zach is comfortable, Zach feels safe, Zach is trusted, and Zach's opinion is valued by everybody else. If we're doing anything less than that, we might be getting 60% of Zach. And, and what I learned a long time ago is that I, I as a leader, I have to, I, my job is to get to the right answer. It's not to be the guy with the right answer. And too often we're focused on leaders being, oh yeah, I know what to do. Mm. Your job's not to know what to do. Your job's to make a decision between the alternatives. That's a huge distinction that a lot of people don't understand. And I, I appreciate those insights and I appreciate you giving us these leadership concepts that obviously have worked very well for you over the years of staying in business for this long and and really pushing Aardvark forward and everything you're focused on now. And before we wrap up for this segment of it, I want to ask, what is the legacy you're wanting to leave on the world with everything that you're putting out there with Aardvark, with the debrief, with protecting those that protect us? What's that legacy you're wanting to leave? I think, and I can give you, I can actually right now, because this just happened, attach a name to that legacy. So that legacy right now is a kid named Jordan Robinson, who was just shot in our armor, right? Jordan was shot seven times, twice in the vest. Uh, I had dinner with Jordan this weekend. Jordan is alive and healthy because the two rounds that hit his vest didn't penetrate his abdominal aorta, which they would have. That's That to me is the legacy. The legacy is that we are... We are caring about people who care about us, and we're protecting people who are putting themselves in harm's way. And everything that I do professionally is focused on that objective. So the debrief is an outgrowth of that objective, right? It is, it is, it is sharing information because information is safety in the tactical community. And whether, whether it's my military operator on a post in Afghanistan, right, or a law enforcement operator or a federal agent, um, you know, Everything that I do to make my guy smarter makes him safer. And so in the end, that really is what I hope the legacy of Aardvark is, is doing the right thing by the end user and caring about their safety in many cases more than they care themselves. And John, I absolutely love that. And as one of those people that have been a service member on both of those sides, I mean, obviously the work you're doing, I can appreciate firsthand. Um, And it's stuff I've seen guys saved by armor. I've seen guys, uh, unfortunately, the armor... Didn't wasn't in the right spots because we can't wear armor head to toe yet. I think nope. you're probably developing something like that. Uh, 
uh, Master Chief Halo suit at some point. We're going to work on it, I'm sure. But um, but, but no, I, I want to give the audience an opportunity. What's the best way to reach out, find more about you? Where's the debrief? Where's all those contact formations? How can they find out more about you and what you're doing with Aardvark Tactical? So, so the debrief is available on whatever platform you use for podcasts, you know, YouTube, uh, got a Vimeo, uh, Apple Podcasts, you know, Podbeam, like literally wherever you go for podcasts, you can find it there. Um, also, the, the website for the debrief is thedebrief.live. Um, and that's where, you know, kind of new episodes are launched. And on every episode, we do a lot of show notes. And we put contact information for all of our guests because the guests that that we bring on are people that are willing to share information. And then, you know, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't do personal social media. The debrief has um, social media has Instagram uh, and Facebook, um, all of which are available through the, through the website, but people are always welcome to reach out to me directly. I definitely encourage everybody to reach out. Um, obviously, our tactical, it's um, beyond being like good stuff. It's also some cool shit. Um, so definitely some cool products you got out there, but also the debrief, man. I've listened to a few of the episodes. Good good conversations are happening. So I encourage the audience to check all of that out with John. And then of course, come back this Friday for Tactical Friday. We're going to dive a little bit more into our actionable tactical steps from John. John, I want to thank you for your time today, my friend. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Tactical Leader Podcast. If this episode helped you along your journey of self-mastery and has inspired you to do more, I challenge you to head over to myvoicechallenge.com so you can find out how you can discover your voice, claim your independence, and build that thriving business that you've always wanted. Again, that's myvoicechallenge.com.